Section six of the Diary of a U-Boat Commander. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Diary of a U-Boat Commander by Stephen King Hall. Section six. I am rather tired tonight, but must just jot down briefly what has taken place today, as there is never any time in the daylight hours. Soon after dawn, at about 8 a.m., we sighted a fair-sized steamer of about 3,000 tons, which we sunk, but I cannot say what she looked like, or whether anyone escaped, as we never came to the surface at all, von Weissmann sighting smoke on the western horizon just as he hit her. We accordingly steered in that direction. However, I think she went almost at once, as von Weissmann put a dot, black, on the chart as we made towards number three. I very much wanted to know whether there were any survivors, but I did not like to ask him at the time, and he has been in such an infernal temper ever since that I haven't had a suitable opportunity. The cause of his rage was as follows. Steamer number three turned out to be a fine fat chap, of the clan line, von Weissmann said, when we first sighted her. We moved in to attack and fired our port bow tube. I waited in vain by the tubes for the expected explosion. Nothing happened, but after a couple of minutes a snarl came down the voice pipe. Surface! Gun action stations! I ran aft and found the captain white with rage. Mr. Head! he said with intense feeling. I'll have to use that confounded gun. In about three minutes the captain and myself were on the bridge and the crew were at their stations round the gun. For the first time I saw the ship. She was stern on, and apparently painted with black and white stripes. As I examined her through glasses, she was distant about three thousand yards. I saw a flash aboard her, and a few seconds later a projectile moaned overhead and fell about six thousand yards over. So she is armed, thought I, and she has actually opened fire on us first. The effect of this unexpected retort on the part of the Englishman was to throw Weissman into a paroxysm of rage. Why don't you fire? What the devil are you waiting for? etc., etc., were some of the remarks he flung at the gun crew. I did not consider it advisable to mention to him that they were probably waiting his order to fire, and also his orders for range and deflection, as I had imagined that, here as everywhere else, an officer controls the gunfire. Apparently in this boat it is not so, as Weissman takes so little interest in his gun that he affects to be, or else actually is, ignorant of the elements of gun control. At any rate, under the lash of his tongue, the gun's crew soon got into action, the gun-layer taking charge. Our first shot was short, very considerably so, as was also the second. Meanwhile the steamer had been keeping up a very creditably controlled rate of fire, straddling us twice, but missing for deflection, as was natural considering that we were bows on to her. I felt thoroughly in my element listening to the significant wail of the enemy's shell, punctuated by the ear-splitting report of our own gun. Weissman, gripping the rail with both hands, 
and to my surprise ducking when one went overhead, watched the target with a fixed expression, but made no attempt to control our gunfire, which was far from creditable, as is inevitable when it is left to the mercy of the inferior intellect of a seaman. However, at the tenth or eleventh round we hit her in the upper works, as was shown by a bright red and yellow flash near her funnel. This did not check her firing or speed in the least, in fact she seemed to be gaining on us. She also began to zigzag slightly and throw smoke-bombs overboard, which were not so effective from her point of view as I had thought they would be. Matters were thus for some minutes. We had just hit her aft for the second time, though the shooting was so disgustingly bad that I was about to ask whether I might do the duties of control officer when there was a blinding flash, and the air seemed to fill with moaning fragments. When I had recovered from my relief from finding that I was personally uninjured, I observed that two of the gun's crew were wounded and one was lying, either killed or seriously wounded, on the casing. We had been hit in the casing, well forward, and as was subsequently proved when we dived, little material damage was caused to the boat. This enemy's success caused a temporary cessation of fire. The two wounded men were cautiously making their way aft to the conning tower, and I called for a couple of stokers to come up and carry away the third, when von Weissmann suddenly gave the order to dive. The gun's crew at once made a rush for the conning tower, and were down the hatch in a trice, one of the wounded men fainting at the bottom. I was unaware as to the reason of this order to dive, and thought that perhaps the captain had sighted a periscope. As I was turning to precede him down the conning tower hatch, I distinctly saw the man lying by the gun lift his hand. I felt I could not leave him there, and instinctively cried, He is still alive! But von Weissmann, who was urging the crew to hurry down the hatch, pressed the diving alarm as soon as the last sailor was half in the hatch. I knew that this meant that the boat would be under in thirty to forty seconds, so I had no alternative but to get down the hatch as quickly as possible. I did so with reluctance, and I was followed by von Weissmann, who joined me in the upper conning tower. I forced myself not to look out of the conning tower scuttles during the few seconds that elapsed as the casing slowly went under, until at last nothing but waving green water showed at each little window. I feared that, if I had looked, I would have seen a wounded man, stung into activity by the cold touch of the Atlantic. Perhaps von Weissmann read my thoughts, or else he remembered my remark concerning the man, for he turned to me, and in level tones said, "'Have you any doubt that he was dead?' I hesitated a moment, and he continued, "'By my direction you have no doubt. He was.' How brutal! war is, and what a perfect exponent of the art the captain proves himself to be. To me a life is a life, a particle of the thing divine. To him a life is a unit, and a half-maimed and probably dying seaman is as nothing in the scales when the safety of a U-boat is at stake. The seamen are numbered in their tens of thousands, the U-boats in their tens. The steamer had hit us once luckily only in the casing. A second hit might well have punctured the pressure hull, and our fate in these waters would have been certain. Therefore, having summed these things up and balanced them in his mind, he dived, 
and the sailor died. Once below water von Weissman seemed more his imperturbable self, and unless I am mistaken he is never really happy on the surface, at least when in action. He is a true water mole. New Entry A day full of interest, though once again I have to force myself to absorb the horrors of war. I imagine that I am now going through the experiences of a new arrival on the Western Front, who feels a desire to shudder at the sight of every corpse. At ten a.m. this morning we sighted the topsails of a sailing-boat to the southwest. Closing her on the surface, we approached to within about six thousand metres, when suddenly von Weissman ordered, Gun Action Stations. The gun crew came tumbling up, but not quick enough to suit him, for as they were mustering at the gun he gave the order to dive, only, however, taking her down to periscope depth before instantly ordering surface, and then gun action stations, again. This time we opened fire on the ship, which was a Norwegian bark, and, being in the barred zone, liable to destruction. Von Weissman had announced overnight that at the first opportunity he would give that gun's crew a bellyful of practice, and he certainly did. As soon as the first shot was fired, she backed her topsails, and when our fourth shot struck her, somewhere near the foot of the foremast, her crew could be seen hastily abandoning their ship. This action on their part had no influence with von Weissman, who had taken personal charge of the helm, and, with the engines running at three-quarter speed, he was zigzagging about, to make it harder for the gun's crew. Every now and then he flung a jibe at the crew, such as suggesting that they should go back to the high seas fleet and learn how to shoot. The sailing ship was soon on fire, for, considering the circumstances, the shooting was very fair, though had I been controlling it I could have confidently guaranteed better results. When she was blazing nicely fore and aft, von Weissman ordered the practice to cease, and sent the crew below. He then ordered course south speed ten knots, and I took over the watch. An hour and a half later, when the navigator gave me a spell, a black cloud on the northern horizon marked the funeral pyre of another of our victims. When I went below, the captain had just finished playing with his precious old chart. New Entry We received a message at 2 a.m. last night from Heligoland to return forthwith. It is now 2 a.m., and we are approaching the redoubtable Dover Barrage. We had no trouble coming up-channel today, which seems singularly empty, at any rate in mid-channel, where we are. New Entry We got back about three hours ago, and as I was appointed temporary to the boat, von Weissman kindly allowed me to leave her and come up to Bruges as soon as we got into the shelters at Zeebrugge. I got up here just in time for a late dinner. Hunger satisfied, I retired to my room, and, needless to say, at once rang up my darling Zoe. By the mercy of Providence she was in, but imagine my sensations when I heard that accursed swine of a colonel was also back from the front, and expected in at the flat at any moment, being then, she thought, engaged in his after-dinner drinking bouts at the cavalry officer's club. I could only groan. A laugh at the other end stung me to furious rage. Appeased in an instant by her soothing tones, as she told me that I should be glad to hear 
that he was only up from the Somme on a four days' leave, and was returning next morning by the 8 a.m. troop train. Glad! I could have danced for joy! I breathed again. As the Colonel was expected back at any moment, she thought it advisable to terminate the conversation, which was done with obvious reluctance on her part, or so I flatter myself. He goes to-morrow, so far so good, but what of the intervening period? Could any more refined torture be imagined than that I, who love her as I love my own soul, should have to sit here, while scarcely a mile away, probably at this very moment as I write, that gross brute is privileged to kiss her, to look at her, to—oh, it's unbearable! When I think of that hog, for though I've never seen him, I've seen his photograph, and I know instinctively that he is gross, fresh, as she says, from a drinking-bout, should at this moment be permitted to raise his pig's eyes and look into those glorious wells of violet light, when I think that his is the privilege to see those masses of black hair fall in uncontrolled splendour, then I understand to the full the deep pleasures of murder. I would give anything to destroy this man, and could shake the Englishman by the hand who fires the delivering bullet. Steady, steady. What do I write? No, I mean it, every word of it. Yet of all the mysteries and to me Zoe is a mass of them. Surely the strangest of all is contained in the question, why does she live with him? She doesn't love him. She's practically told me so. In fact, I know she doesn't. Let me reason it out by logic. She lives with him, whether voluntarily or involuntarily. Suppose it be voluntarily, then her reasons must be a. love, b. fascination, c some secret reason. If she is living with him involuntarily, it must be d. he has a hold on her, e. for financial reasons. I strike out at once a and e, for in the case of e she knows well that I would provide for her, and a I refuse to admit. b is hardly credible. I eliminate that. I am left with c and d, which might be the same thing. But what hold can he have on her? She can't have a past. She is too young and sweet for that. I must find out about this before I go to sea again. New Entry Three days ago I was racking my brains for the solution of a problem, and as I see from what I wrote I was somewhat outside myself. In the interval things have taken an amazing turn. I am still bewildered, but I must put it all down from the beginning. The Colonel left as she said he would, and I went round to lunch with her. We had a delightful tete-a-tete, and after lunch she played the piano. I was feeling in splendid voice, and she accompanied me to perfection in Kajowski's To the Forest, always a favourite of mine. As the last chords died away, Zoe jumped up from the piano and, with eyes dancing with excitement, placed her hands on my shoulders and exclaimed, Carl. I have an idea. I shall make a prisoner of you for two or three days." I laughed heartily, and almost told her that she had already made me a prisoner for life. Only I can never get those sort of remarks out quick enough. But when she said, "'No, I am not joking, I mean it,' 
I felt there was some more meaning in her sentence than I had at first thought. I begged to be enlightened, and she then unfolded her scheme. She told me for the first time that in a forest not far from Bruges she had a little summer-house, to which she used to retreat for weekends in the hot weather when the colonel was away. He knew nothing of this country-house, she was very insistent on that point, so I imagined she paid for it out of her dress allowance or in some other way. The idea that had just struck her was that she had a sudden fancy to go and spend two days there, and I was to go with her. I was ready to go to Africa with her if my leave permitted, and it so happened that I was due for four days overseas leave, limited to Belgian territory, so that this fitted in very well, and I told her so. She was delighted, then, with one of those quick intuitions which women are so clever at. She read the half-formed thought on my mind, and said, "'You mustn't think it's not going to be conventional. Old Babette will be with us to chaperone me.' Old Babette is an aged female whom she calls her maid. I think she is jealous of me. I agreed at once that of course I quite understood it was to be highly conventional, etc., though I smiled to myself as I visualized my mother's shocked face and uplifted hands as she heard my Zoe's ideas on the conventions. I was trying to fathom what was at the bottom of it all when she remarked, "'Of course, as my prisoner, you will have to obey all my orders.' I replied that this was certainly so. "'And one of the first things,' she continued, that happens to a prisoner when he goes through the enemy lines is that he is blindfolded, and in the same way I shan't let you know where you are going. Seeing a doubtful look in my eyes, as I endeavoured to keep pace with the underlying idea, if any, of this truly feminine fancy, she suddenly came up to me and, lifting her eyes to mine, murmured, "'Don't you trust me?' In a moment my passion flared up and rained hot kisses on her face as she struggled to release herself from my arms. When I left that night after dinner, and, walking on air, returned to the mess, it was arranged that I should be at her flat with my suitcase at six p.m. the next evening, prepared, to use her own words, to disappear with me for forty-eight hours. She had told me of an address in Bruges which she said would forward on any telegram if I was recalled and I had to be satisfied with that, for I may as well say here that I never discovered where I went to, and I don't know to this moment in what part of Belgium I spent the last two nights. I tried to find out at first, but as she obviously attached some importance to keeping the locality of her woodland retreat a secret, probably to circumvent the colonel, I soon gave up trying to get the secret from her, and contented myself with taking things as they came. To go on with my account of what happened, which was really so remarkable that I propose writing it out in detail, to the best of my memory. At six p.m. next day I was naturally at her flat, feeling very much as if I were on the threshold of an adventure. Zoe was excited, and the flat was in a turmoil, as apparently she had only just begun to pack her dressing-case. Soon after six we went down and got into a large Mercedes car which I had noticed standing outside when I arrived. We were soon on our way, and left Bruges by the eastern barrier. We showed our passes, and proceeded into the darkened countryside. We had been running for about a mile when she remarked, 
Prisoners will now be blindfolded. And, to my astonishment, slipped a little black silk bag over my head. I was so startled I didn't know whether to be angry, or to laugh, or what to do. Eventually I did nothing, and, entering into the spirit of the game, declared that even a wretched prisoner had the right not to be stifled, whereupon she lifted the lower portion of the bag and uncovered my mouth. Shortly afterwards I was electrified to feel a pair of soft lips meet mine, a sensation which was repeated at frequent intervals, and as I whispered in her ear, under these conditions I was prepared to be taken prisoner into the jaws of hell. This pleasant journey had lasted for about three-quarters of an hour, when my mask was removed, and I was informed that I was inside the enemy lines. Through the windows of the car I could dimly see that an apparently endless mass of fir-trees were rushing past on each side. This state of affairs continued for a kilometre or so, when we branched to the right and soon entered a large clearing in the forest, at one side of which stood the house. Babette, Zoe, and myself entered the building, and the car disappeared, presumably back to Bruges. The house, built of logs, was of two stories. On the ground floor were two living rooms, and the domains of Babette, who amongst her other accomplishments turned out to be not only a most capable valet, but a first-class cook. On the second story there were two large rooms. The whole house was furnished after the manner of a hunting lodge, with stags' heads on the walls and skins on the floors. In the drawing-room there was a piano and a few etchings of the wild boar by Chaffane. I dressed for dinner in my smoking, though under ordinary circumstances I should have considered this rather formal, but I was glad I did, for she appeared in full evening tenure. She wore a violet gown, and across her forehead a black satin bandeau with a Z in diamonds upon it. It must have cost two thousand marks, and I wondered with a dull kind of jealousy whether the Colonel had given it to her. I cannot remember of what we talked during dinner. We have a hundred subjects in common, and we look at so many aspects of the world through the same pair of eyes. I only know that when I have been talking to her for a period, there is no exact measurement of time for me when I am with her. I leave her presence feeling completed. I feel that a sort of gap within my being has been filled, that a spiritual hunger has been satisfied, that I have got something which I wanted but for which I could not have formulated the desire in words. I had resolved that on this first night I would bring matters between us to a head, and end this delicious but intolerable uncertainty as to how we stood. Yet, when old Babette had served us with coffee in the drawing-room, as I call the second living-room, and we were alone together, I could not bring up the subject partly because I think she prevented me so doing by that skilful shepherding of the conversation into other paths, with an artfulness with which God endows all women, and also partly because I could not screw myself up to the pitch. I could not, or rather would not, put my fate to the touch. I had a presentiment that in reaching for the summit I might fall from the slope. Alas! How true was this foreboding in some senses! but I will keep all things in their right order. Let it only be recorded that when she kissed me good-night, with the tenderness of a mother, and left me to smoke a final cigar, I had said nothing, 
and I could only wonder at the strange fate that had placed me practically alone with a girl whom I had grown to love with a deep emotion, and who appeared to love me, yet often behaved as if I were her brother. The next day we were like two children. The snow was deep on the ground, and the fir-trees stood like thousands of sentinels in grey uniform round the clearing. Once during the afternoon, as with Zoe's assistance I was furiously chopping wood for the fire, a droning noise made me look up, and thousands of meters overhead a small squadron of aeroplanes, evidently bound for the western front, sailed slowly across the sky. I thought how awkward it would be for them if they experienced an engine failure whilst over the forest, though they were up so high that I imagined they could have glided ten kilometers, and as I think, but I am not certain, and I have pledged myself not to try and find out. We were in the forest of Montellan, which is barely fifteen kilometers broad. I suppose they could have fallen clear of the trees. As a matter of fact, I imagine they would have used our clearing. I'm glad they didn't. That night after dinner she played to me, first Beethoven, and then Chopin. I can see her as I write. She had just finished the fourteenth prelude, and resting her chin on her hand, she smiled mysteriously at me. The hour had come, and, driven by strong impulses, I spoke. I told her that I loved her as I had never thought that a man could love a woman. I told her that I longed to shield her and protect her, and above all things to remove her from the clutches of that bestial colonel and as I bent over her and felt my senses swim in the subtleties of her perfume, I begged her passionately to say the word that would give me the right to fight the world on her behalf. When I had finished, she was silent for a long while, and I can remember distinctly that I wondered whether she could hear the thump, thump, thump of my heart, which to my agitated mind seemed to beat with the strength of a hammer. At length she spoke. Two words came slowly from her lips. I cannot. I was not discouraged. I could see, I could feel, that a tremendous struggle was raging, the outward signs of which were concealed by her averted head. At length I asked her point-blank whether she loved me. Her silence gave me my answer, and I took her unresisting body into my arms, and kissed her to distraction. Oh, these kisses! How bitter they seem to me now! And yet how I longed to hold her once again! For, freeing herself from my embrace, and speaking almost mechanically, she said, Carl, I must tell you, I cannot marry you. I pleaded, I prayed, I argued, I demanded. It was in vain. I always came up against the immovable, I cannot. And then I crashed over the precipice towards whose edge I had been blindly going. I had said for the hundredth time, But you know you love me, when with a sob she abandoned all reserve, and flinging her arms round my neck, implored me to take her. Then, as I caught my breath, she quickly said, as if frightened that she had gone too far, But I cannot marry you. I looked down into those beautiful eyes, and for the first time I understood. For perhaps ten seconds I battled for my soul and the purity of our love, 
Then, tearing my sight from those eyes which would lure an archangel to destruction, I was once more master of my body. As my resolution grew, I hated her for doing this thing that had wrecked in an instant the hopes of months, the ideals on which I had begun to build afresh my life. She felt the change, and left me. As she went out by the door she gave me one last look, a look in which love struggled with shame, a look which no man has ever earned the right to receive from any woman. But I was as a statue of marble, dazed by this calamity. As the door closed upon her I started forward. It was too late. Had she waited another instant, but there I write of what has happened and not what might have been. I did not sleep that night, until the dawn began to separate each fir-tree from the black mass of the forest. Twice in the night, with shame I confess it, I opened my door and looked down the little passageway, and twice I closed the door and threw myself upon my bed in an agony of torment. It was ten o'clock when a knock at the door aroused me, and the sunlight through the window-pane was tracing patterns on the floor. There was a note on the breakfast-table, but before I opened it I knew that, save for Babette, I was alone in the house. The note was brief, unaddressed, and unsigned. I have it here before me. I have meant to tear it up, but I cannot. It is a weakness to keep it, but I have lost so much in the last few days that I will not grudge myself some small relic of what has been. The note says, I am leaving for Bruges at half-past eight, when the car was ordered to fetch us back. I go alone. Babette will give you breakfast. The car will return for you at eleven o'clock. I rely on your honour, in that you will not observe where you have been. Come to me when you want me. Till then, farewell." It was as she said, and I honourably acceded to her request. This afternoon, just before lunch, I arrived at Bruges, and since tea-time I have tried to write down what has happened since I left the day before yesterday. Oh! How could she do it? How can it be possible that she is a woman like that? I could have sworn that she was not like this, and yet how can I account for her life with the Colonel? There must be some reason, but in heaven's name what? Meanwhile I am to go to her when I want her, and that will be when I can give her my name. But, oh, Zoe, I want you now, so badly, oh, so badly. End of section.